July 27th for Paseo de Vino, Walk of Wine Hayward. For ticket information, contact Ramona Thomas at 510-583-8542 or visit hayward-ca.gov and click on events. This benefits the Hayward Friends of Animals. And good afternoon. You are listening to 94.1 FM KPFA here in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno and online at kpfa.org. The time is now 3 p.m. Stay tuned for a stone's throw with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadow. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is the 16th of July, 2013. I will be among the missing the next two Tuesdays. We are in a fundraising marathon uh, those two Tuesdays. Um, and I hope to be lying on a beach somewhere, but never mind that. Uh what I'd like to do today, of course, is to wrap up some of the things I've been doing about feminine genius or feminist genius. Of course, I have here 17 little pieces, essays, scraps. Oh, it's hopeless. Uh, there's no way to synthesize my thoughts. Certainly not on, on the Bronte sisters. Uh, I started out weeks ago with a, a movie called Devotion, an absurd picture, but it had uh, Ida Lupino playing Emily Bronte. Uh, actually, it was pretty dreadful, but I keep thinking there is one long shot, an image. It comes into the film twice. It's... um. Uh, well, it's a demon on horseback. Uh, you remember W. B. Yeats always uh, spoke of the horseman. Yes, horseman passed by, was on his tombstone. Anyway, this figure, either uh, a demon lover or death, uh, uh, Ida Lupino is following this figure and she keeps saying, so little time. Uh, it's... It's, what is it? Uh, of course, it's sentimental. I don't know what it is, but uh, it does stay with me. Uh, actually, devotion is is not, what is it? I, I The critics treat it with such contempt, and I keep looking at it because it has... Yes, Olivia de Havilland plays Charlotte Bronte, and she's very snippy. Uh, 
I don't know where they get that notion about Charlotte Bronte. Uh, Paul Henry plays the love interest for what it's worth. Uh, no cigarettes, of course, in this movie. Anyway, if you get a chance to see Devotion, uh, it tells you a lot about what was going on in Hollywood in 1946. Uh, what else have I got here in front of me? I've got a hilarious little book by Virginia Woolf called Flush. It's all about her dog. Someone wrote me a letter this month saying, didn't I have any nice stories about pets? <laughs> and I thought, yes. It's a wonderful story about the uh, the beloved dog of Elizabeth Barrett Browning. His name was Flush, was a spaniel. Uh, it's my favorite book for introducing young students to the uh, the Victorians, and of course Virginia Woolf is a kind of late Victorian uh, or Edwardian, I guess. And Flush is a wonderful way to introduce these books. Uh, Elizabeth Barrett Browning is another story. Uh, anyway. Last week, I used some of the poems of a dear friend, Alicia Ostricker. And I think I, I like Alicia as a touchstone. Uh, she is the sort of modern poet uh, who could not have come into being without these 19th century women, without these foremothers, uh, I look here at some lines from Emily Bronte. They are what I would call uh, the cry, uh, calling us, calling us to arms. Here is Emily Bronte in 1846. That's not 1946 when they made the movie Devotion, but 1846 when she was very much alive. She wrote a poem called, No Coward Soul is Mine. Here are four lines from that poem. Emily Bronte writes, Vain are the thousand creeds that move men's hearts, unutterably vain, worthless as withered weeds or idlest froth amid the boundless main. In other words, <laughs> no way, boys. Bye, Pharaoh, honey. Um, Emily. Yes, Emily said it. And before I forget, oh, so many things, so many loose ends. Before I forget, I wanted to tell you about something that's in the current New Yorker, in case you're in the store and you want to buy it. Uh, it's the New Yorker for July 8 and... Uh, 15, and it's just a little personal history called The Prodigal Daughter. It's by Jill Lepore. I can never figure out how to pronounce her last name. L-E-P-O-R-E. She's on the staff at the New Yorker. I'm sure she's always writing essays for them. This is in the personal history section, writing history and mourning with a U, mourning. The Prodigal Daughter. She writes about her own um, mother, mother-daughter relationship, and about uh, <laughs> Jane Franklin, the kid sister of Benjamin Franklin. And it was a, so startling to me because I was just thinking about 
uh, Virginia Woolf stories about Shakespeare's sister. You remember how Shakespeare's sister, <laughs> yes, came to London, got knocked up, and that was the end of her. Anyway, uh, Benjamin Franklin's sister lived uh, in the late 18th century. Uh, trapped passions, right? Uh, anyway, Jane is, I think, well, I don't know, just as charming and uh, just as big <laughs> a smart aleck as her brother Benjamin, but of course, her story is the antithesis of his. Uh, the funniest thing in this uh, profile is Jane Franklin's spelling. Now, uh, half her letters are missing the first three or four decades because, of course, uh, they were thrown away. Uh, she kept Ben Franklin's letters, uh, one-sided correspondence. Uh, what is it uh, here? It says, he, Benjamin Franklin, loved no one longer. Right, he loved no one longer than his sister Jane. She loved no one better. She thought of him as her second self. Uh, she married at 15... There's not one uh, one expression of affection for her husband in any of her letters. Uh, anyway, Ben was a free man. She had, uh, let's see, is it 17? Not children, anyway, she gave birth 17 times. Anyway, uh, she lived to be 83. Ben lived to be 84. She must have been tough as nails. Uh Anyway, I recommend to you this article, The Prodigal Daughter. It's in the New Yorker magazine of July 8 and 15. Uh, I, I find that this woman is an incredible smart aleck. I don't know how she could have been so charming and funny. Uh, she complains later in life that she doesn't have the kind of conversation and that she's entitled to, yes, she's entitled to have a decent conversation. And uh, in spite of having a decent place to live, Benjamin Franklin found her a, a nice spot. Uh, let's see, right, yes, she says she's painting the front of the house to make it look decent that I may not be ashamed when anybody inquires for Dr. Franklin's sister. <laughs> anyway, she does complain that she's been deprived by providence of the right to uh, a little conversation. <laughs> That's actually kind of shocking. She doesn't come to politics until much later in life. Uh, anyway, uh I love all these things. She she begins to read and she asks Benjamin Franklin to send her all his political uh, writings. And he said he says he could just as easily send her all his his nail parings. Uh, anyway, um, she seems to be what I would call uh, uh, she comes to consciousness late in life and. Uh, Political consciousness, although obviously she's been having fun all her life in her own way. Uh, who knows? Anyway, 
I think she got it. I think she got the joke. Uh, I guess I think it was her good health that saw her through, but uh, she was a woman of her time, whether or not she had it in her to become uh, as clever and uh, successful as Benjamin Franklin. We will never know. Uh, anyway, I want to read you one poem I'm determined to do at least one poem each week. Here I'm almost halfway through my little bit of time. Last week I read a little bit of Alicia Ostriker. Alicia Susskind Ostriker. My favorite modern poet. The woman who um, is the beneficiary of these four mothers. Uh, this book. Hmm. Last week I read you a poem from her book about uh, uh, Jewish women. This one is called The Book of Seventy. Ah, she's not quite as old as I am. She's born in 1937. I was born in 1933. Anyway, now that she's 70, she has uh, something to say about that. Here it is. This poem is called The Blessing of the Old Woman the tulip and the dog. <laughs> yeah, there are three blessings in this poem. It's terrific, yes. The old woman, the tulip, and the dog first, yes. To be blessed, said the old woman, is to live and work so hard, God's love washes right through you like milk through a cow. To be blessed said the dark red tulip, is to knock their eyes out with the slug of lust implied by your upended skirt. <sighs> to be blessed, said the dog, is to have a pinch of God inside you and all the other dogs can smell it. <laughs> Three blessings, yes, I think of the the wonderful fairy godmothers, you know, the blessings they give us, yes, laughter and hope and the sock in the eye, didn't Dorothy Parker say, right? Uh, anyway, Alicia Ostriker has three blessings. Uh, the old woman, yes, God's love, uh, Live and work so hard that God's love washes right through you like milk through a cow. Then comes the blessing of the dark red tulip. Knock their eyes out with the slug of lust implied by your upended skirt. And finally, blessing of the dog. Yes. To be blessed, said the dog, is to have a pinch of God inside you and all the other dogs can smell it. <laughs> anyway, I'm going back to the Brontes now. I could spend hours and hours on the Brontes. I used to do that back in the day when we had a hour show late at night at 11 o'clock at night. I could read actually huge chunks of the novels and biographies of these wonderful women. Uh, 
They're not just foremothers. They are my life's companions. <laughs> it's a, so, it seems so, so funky to be always talking about the Brontes. Uh, but I do think of them as my intimates. Uh, let's see. I know I'm going to run out of time, so I want to jump right into the important stuff. Uh, right, I'm going to jump right into Wuthering Heights. Right, Wuthering Heights is not a love story. It's Charlotte Bronte who wrote love stories. Wuthering Heights is a psychodrama. It's a poem about the unconscious. It's about neurotic love, the love that cannot transcend childhood, the primal passions of the youthful pair, Kathy and Heathcliff, cannot withstand the assault of society, of the civilized world of Victorian patriarchy, so gently, sweetly symbolized by the Lintons, um, Yes, brother and sister, the Lintons at Thrush Cross Grange. This local ruling class family is the essence of refinement in the mid-nineteenth century. Their household is guarded by male bulldogs who symbolically rape Kathy when she tries to peek in at a window to watch the gentry at play. <laughs> she wants to dabble with them, yes. But the devil had seized her ankle. I heard his abominable snorting. She did not yell out, no. She would have scorned to do it. Heathcliff goes on to describe his efforts to shove a stone down the throat of the bulldog. His efforts are in vain. And the barefoot, Kathy, is carried off into seductive comforts, yes, into soft living and privilege, yes, she's going to be seduced by the world of the Lintons. This book is a poem about the lives of women and men, crushed by a society which demands they live a lie. Footnote here. Of course, all that has changed. All right. Uh huh. Anyway, Kathy is the victim of the Victorian feminine mystique. Like the Brontes themselves, she is almost an invalid. She sinks into suicidal depression. She dies, literally dies, of womanhood. That is to say, she dies in childbirth. Heathcliff falls or sinks into aggression, into violence, right? Uh, woman suicidal, man homicidal. With her masculine hand, her uh, animus, right? Emily wrote of this volcanic and powerful part of herself. Charlotte Bronte describes Emily's capacity to create titans in her work, in her writing. Charlotte writes, quote, refusing absolutely to make ropes out of sea sand any longer, she sets to work on statue hewing. 
The central characters in Wuthering Heights are the beginning of a new mythology for women. They incorporate ancient archetypes, Greek gods. They represent hubris, the overweening arrogance and pride, which bring down the tragic hero. And yes, a woman can be a tragic hero. Yes, a woman can be searching for, uh, what is that, her tragic self. Uh, these adolescent souls, Kathy and Heathcliff, uh, reveal unleashed libido, the will to power. It has its source in the id, in the grasping infinite, infant. Yes, the infant, not the infinite. The infant within each of us. Emily insists that after their deaths, these children grow up. Now, Yes, what she does is she she lets them have children, and the children evolve. It is instructive to realize that even today, no one is the least bit interested in the second half of the book, in which the succeeding pair, the uh, daughter of Kathy and the son of Heathcliff, grow up. Yes, they behave in what Virginia Woolf would call man-womanly and woman-manly fashions. Yes, that's the way they go. This is new mythology. It's something we're still trying to act out more than, oh, I guess, is it two centuries? Yes, no. Uh, It's been a long time. Emily herself died a hero. In the preface to the 1850 edition of Wuthering Heights, Charlotte Bronte writes, Never in all her life had she lingered over any task that lay before her. She did not linger now. She sank rapidly. She made haste to leave us. I have seen nothing like it, but indeed, I have never seen her parallel in anything. Stronger than a man, simpler than a child, her nature stood alone. Well, I have to skip um, chunks of this essay that I wrote when I was doing my uh, thesis on the Brontes. Uh, There's all this wonderful stuff about the man that Charlotte was in love with uh, when the two girls, the sisters, were in Brussels. Uh, He seemed to think that Emily was the... uh, the greater genius, he writes of Emily, she should have been a man. <laughs> he says, yes, uh, yeah, he says she was obtuse to all reasoning and that she was egotistical and exacting compared to Charlotte. <laughs> right. Yes, Charlotte was amenable. Yes, he could mold Charlotte. Anyway, on the day that she died, Emily Bronte refused to see a doctor. In a letter to a friend, Charlotte later wrote, The morning grew on to noon. Emily was worse. She could only whisper in gasps. Now, when it was too late, she said to Charlotte, If if you will send for a doctor, I will see him now. 
about two o'clock, she died. Emily Bronte's sacred conviction was that her soul was her own. She believed that the chaos that is our life on earth could be sculpted, could be formed into order. Emily Bronte was in no sense masculine or feminine. She knew that the soul is in the stone, in earth itself. She is a manifestation of mother light, uh, Maya Shakti, the all-mother, mater genetrix, mater omnium, call it what you will. <laughs> the list of names is two pages long, right? Uh, let's just call it uh, essence. In Charlotte's book, Jane Eyre, there's a vision of the great mother... It's during a scene in which Jane is torn between her desire to submit to a man, yes, the arms of a lord of creation, right, and her desire to save herself. In that scene, the goddess of the moon appears to her and says, Daughter, flee temptation. Charlotte, too, knew in her bones that there was an ancient religion which even in a Christian costume, guided her choices. For Emily, these divine substances were not only available for emergencies, they were the stuff of her daily life. Now, I wish I had time to uh, read you all this material about Emily Bronte's work and how she was unique and how she... She let her ghost go and visit Carl Jung and give him all his theories. Yes, I wrote a play about that. It's wonderful. Uh, they sit around Carl Jung's study while she gives him all his material. Anyway, let me just read you the last thing that I have here about Charlotte writing. She discovers one day, yes, she discovers Emily's poetry. Emily did not share it with her willingly. Charlotte Bronte wrote, One day in the autumn of 1845, I accidentally lighted on a manuscript volume of verse. In my sister Emily's handwriting, of course, I was not surprised. Knowing that she could and did write verse, I looked it over and something... More than surprise seized me a deep conviction that these were not common effusions, nor at all like the poetry women generally write. I thought them condensed and terse, vigorous and genuine. To my ear they had also a peculiar music, Wild, melancholy, and elevating. That's an essay called Notes on the Bronte. It's a very long essay that um, it's in a book of mine called Stone's Throw, published in 1988. And it goes into all kinds of detail about this remarkable family living in Yorkshire. Uh, yes. Most of them, well, 
all but Charlotte, uh, died very, very young. Charlotte lived to be all of 39. She unfortunately married and became pregnant, and that finished her off. But uh, all the others died before 30. The two oldest girls died when they were uh, 11 and 12. Anyway, this essay is uh, part of my um, master's thesis for, uh, let's see, that was back in 1974. And I'm still a worshiper at the shrine of these remarkable Victorian women. And you will find their inheritors, their descendants, every time you open a book of poetry written by women today. This has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back on the air in three weeks. Until then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. The author of The Color Purple was the eighth child of Georgia sharecroppers. A childhood accident blinded her in one eye, yet she went on to become valedictorian of her high school, then to college on scholarships before volunteering in the voter registration drives of the 1960s in Georgia. From there, she went to work in the welfare department in New York City. Now, Alice Walker is an internationally renowned author, poet, winner of a Pulitzer Prize and National Book Award, and a fearless activist. She'll present two new books at a KPFA benefit on Wednesday, July 31st, 7.30, at First Congregational Church, 2345 Channing Way at Durant in Berkeley. Wheelchair access. Tickets are $15 advance through brownpapertickets.com or supportive bookstores. Brian Edwards Teekert will host as Alice Walker tells us, as only she can, about the new awakening in our world, July 31st.